0: Well, as we've mentioned the last several weeks, uh, Trinity Tide is that season that focuses on our sanctification and our growth in virtue. I'll probably say that another 20 times as we go through. Not probably not. I'm just kidding. But we will be saying that quite often as we go through Trinity Tide. Um, the last couple of weeks, we have focused on building a foundation in love so God's love for us being that primary foundation for our growth and virtue. Um, in other words, we will get nowhere in our sanctification unless we are folks who are first loved by God. And then we learn to love God and love our neighbor in response to God's love for us. Well, today, the third Sunday after Trinity, the third Sunday in Trinity Tide, we will pick up our spiritual weapons and head out onto the battlefield. And the first enemy that we're going to fight is that age-old foe, pride. So please open your Bibles to, pick to 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Uh, 1 Peter 5.5, 5. and you can find this also in your prayer book on page 192. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, page 192, and we're picking up in the second half of that verse. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. So, when we discuss that problem of pride, uh, we run up to from the very beginning this, this issue that in English, the word pride has a wide range of meaning. So when St. Peter says in our epistle, God resisteth the proud, does pride mean the same thing as when I say that I'm proud of my daughter for uh, what she learned in class? Or when a craftsman says that he's proud of that high quality piece of furniture he just made? Well, we need, to, we need to define our terms properly if we're going to understand what God's Word is telling us. Um, kind of as an aside, uh, I was just remembering this as I was doing the first homily today. Um, when we were in ninth grade, uh, one of my one of my good friends, who would eventually become one of my college roommates, he and I both had the same uh, essay assignment writing about pride, and he really narrowly focused on this one verse and kind of got into trouble for it because <laughs> he just basically just just said how terrible pride was. Um, you know, I, I kind of took a little bit more nuanced. Realizing that there's other ways it's used in scriptures as well as in the piece of literature we were, we were doing an essay on and uh, did a little bit better for that. So, um, yeah, it's important to define terms. So, first of all, we have um, we do see that the Old Testament does occasionally use a word that gets translated into English as pride, a word that, that connotes dignity. So that's the kind of pride that I would be talking about about my daughter, right, or about the craftsman. That dignity. The New Testament, however, doesn't really use it that way. And it has three different concepts that get translated into pride um, in the New Testament. So first in the New Testament, we have a a pride that speaks to loftiness or high-mindedness. Uh, When we look at the Greek version of the Old Testament, that word sometimes speaks of majesty or glory. But in the New Testament, that particular word generally talks about people who are um, standing taller than they ought to stand, metaphorically speaking. So in Romans chapter 11, St. Paul uses this sense of pride when he tells the Gentile Christians not to be proud in relation to the Jewish unbelievers that were cut off from the covenant because of their unbelief. Gentiles, don't be proud of that. You weren't better than your Jewish friend. Rather, the Gentiles are supposed to realize that their belief is by God's grace, right? Second of all, we have another sense of pride that speaks to boastfulness or something of which one has cause to boast, So this is the sense of pride that St. Paul speaks of in Romans 15 when he says, In Christ Jesus, I have a reason to be proud of my work for God. So this kind of pride can be a good thing. But even then, scripturally speaking, we realize that the causes for this sort of pride, the causes for boasting, come from the Lord. Our pride or our boasting in this sense is really in Christ, not in ourselves. And then finally, we have this third sense in the New Testament, a pride that speaks to boastfulness. I'm sorry, a pride that speaks to arrogance or haughtiness. And this is the sense of pride that St. Peter uses in our epistle. So in classical Greek literature, in the Greek myths and whatnot, this kind of pride is often called hubris, and it speaks to a person exalting himself above the gods. So for example, we have a myth, um, one of the Greek myths, we have a wicked king named Salmoneus, who in his pride develops a machine that um, makes thunderclaps, and then he tells all of his subjects to worship him as if he were Zeus. And in the myth, he ends up getting severely punished by Zeus and the other gods. Because even the pagans understood that you should not be haughty or proud and have excessive pride in the face of divinity. If we look at some of the passages of scripture where this same Greek word is used we can see how this concept of blasphemous hubris is attached to this kind of pride in the New Testament as well. So Luke one fifty one in the Magnificat, so that's the song of Our Lady um, that we sing every even song. The Blessed Virgin Mary sings that God hath shown strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Then in Romans 1.30 When speaking of the folks who have rejected God and then were given up to a debased mind, St. Paul describes them as slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty. There's there's that same concept of pride. Boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. And then in 2 Timothy 3, verse 2, when St. Paul is speaking of the godlessness of the last days, he says... For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. So, in all of these examples and all of these things, we see that the arrogant, haughty kind of pride described in today's epistle is against a life that is united to Christ. Fourth century monk John Cassian, who helped to introduce. Um, Communal style monasticism to the West. John Cassian writes the following about pride. He says, There is then no other fault which is so destructive of all virtues and robs and despoils a man of all righteousness and holiness as this evil of pride, which, like some pestilential disease, attacks the whole man and, not content to damage one part or one limb only, injures the entire body by its deadly influence and endeavors to cast down by a most fatal fall and destroy those who were already at the top of the tree of the virtues. In other words, you might have been doing really good and then pride knocks you right off the mountain. Because other sins and vices, they might attack one of the virtues, but pride attacks all the virtues at the same time. Pride is that very sin that caused Lucifer's fall from being one of the chief archangels to becoming Satan, the chief of the devils. So with all that in mind, we can see why God resisteth the proud, why God opposes the proud, as the verse we just read from our epistle says. But the epistle also says that God gives grace to the humble. The Greek word translated into the passages humble speaks to being lowly, undistinguished, or of no account. And it is usually used in a derogatory manner in other Greek literature. Humility in the greater culture of the first century, greater, the wider Greco-Roman culture, is not a good thing. It makes you lose face. But... In the New Testament, God values humility in his people. So consider, for example, the following verses. We have another verse from the Magnificat um, in Luke 152. Our Lord's mother says, He hath put down the mighty from their seats and hath exalted the humble and meek. Or perhaps we have our Lord's invitation to uh, some of those would-be disciples um, where he says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Same word there, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Or we have St. James' exhortation to his flock where he says, let the lowly brother, the humble brother, boast in his exaltation. Throughout the New Testament, Christians are called to a humility that does not come natural to human beings. We're called to a humility thats countercultural. counter-cultural. We're called to a humility that is supernatural. In the next verse of our epistle, we see some of the reasoning behind the calling. So let's pick up in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, bottom of page 192, verses 6 and 7. St. Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. So rather than exalt ourselves with haughtiness, arrogance, or hubris, we're called to humble ourselves and then let God do the exalting. With his uh, characteristic turn of phrase and bluntness, The uh, reformer John Calvin has this to say about these verses. He says, We are to imagine that God has two hands, the one which like a hammer beats down and breaks in pieces those who raise up themselves, and the other which raises up the humble who willingly let down themselves and is like a firm prop to sustain them. He writes, Were we really convinced of this and had it deeply fixed in our minds, who of us would dare by pride to urge war with God? But the hope of impunity now makes us fearlessly to raise up our horn to heaven. Let, us then, let then this declaration of St. Peter be as a celestial thunderbolt to make men humble. In our flesh, we tend to be proud. <laughs> so let let the word of God keep us humble. It's a good caution. It speaks to the problem with pride. Um, we have a tendency to urge war with God. We do need a true godly humility, but if we're honest, we all know folks who uh, we all know what it's like to be around folks who have a false humility, right? A feigned lowliness. and isn't this just another form of pride? You may have heard the term humble brag. It's kind of a relatively new term, but it, it uh, it's It talks about that idea of, um, you know, saying something that appears to be humble, but we all know you're really just using it to brag. (laughs) True humility is not a humble brag. True humility comes from realizing our true state before God and before each other. We realize that we do need God to sustain us. In our collect, for example, we have a humble prayer that recognizes our need not only for God's mighty aid from all dangers and adversity, but also our need for God to supply the desire to pray in the first place. God gives us the desire to come before him humbly. And we also see humility illustrated in our gospel lesson. The passage begins with Jesus losing face in the sight of the religious leaders and other important folks in the society because he received sinners and ate with them. So like we said, it's, it's not, it's uh, in greater society, humility is not valued. You lose face. Jesus is losing face here. But he responds to their criticism by telling two parables about the rejoicing that comes when a sinner repents. And in actually, in the, pa- in the chapter, there's three parables, because the third one is the parable of, um, of the prodigal son. They all really go together. But usually in the reading, we chop it down to two, because that would make for a long epistle passage. And we don't want to do that, to poor Chris there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> repentance, the theme of those, those three parables. Repentance always requires humility. It always requires us to see ourselves... <laughs> as we really are, and to put aside pride, arrogance, and hubris. There are no humble brags before God. Notice also, though, that Jesus was willing to humble himself to eat with those sinners. Jesus put aside his glory, and he humbled himself to become one of us, to live in perfect obedience and submission to his Father, even to the point of suffering and dying for the sake of us, for the sake of those whom he had created from the dust. He died for dust. He died for me and you. And this is, of course, a big part of our call to humility. We're supposed to be following in Jesus' footsteps. Just as he was exalted to, his, to, the, to, to the right hand of the Father, when he rose in a glorified body and then ascended into heaven, so too will we be raised in glory and brought before his throne. There's a payoff for this. He's not leaving us in the dust. But in the meantime, we cast our cares, we cast our anxieties upon Christ. For as St. Peter wrote, he cares for us. It's true that humility is not always valued before the world, isn't usually valued before the world. We may sometimes get taken advantage of when we are humble. We may be seen as foolish or weak in the eyes of the world. But Jesus can shoulder that burden. We know his love. We know that the cost of discipleship in this world is no match to the glories and joys of the world to come. This is, of course, a process, right? This is something we need to pray for, something we need to work for, something we need to trust God for. Our flesh prefers pride. The devil prefers pride. The world prefers pride. But our spirit, the new man, who has been born again by God's spirit, knows the value of humility. And sometimes, just sometimes, the world takes note Sometimes the Holy Spirit uses the humility of Christians to convict the unbeliever and light a spark that brings them to Jesus in faith and repentance, where they humble themselves just like the repentant sinner already has, so that we can all be born again and raised together by Christ and with Christ. And we say this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.